Can we just pray one more time and then we're going to get into it? John chapter 4, you can turn there and uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning and we thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. Lord, it is a beautiful thing that we can stand here, women in Vista, California, with our sister from India. And we all look to the same Jesus who looked at us and knew our name and who is our maker and now our savior. And we thank you for who you are, for what you've done in our lives, for what you want to do, Lord. And I do pray that you would just um, be in our midst, move in our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes to receive what you want to speak to us this morning. And we just commit it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Yvonne was funny. She says, oh, I don't want to step on anything Marianne's going to say. And I'm going, well, you know, we are dressed almost exactly alike. So, you know, here's some notes. You know, and I'm just going to sit in the back and eat. But uh, John chapter 4. So we're going to read a little, uh, chat a little, read a little more. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. This was interesting. If you back up and read a little in chapter 3, what's going on is Jesus is not too far from where John the Baptist is, and they're, they're the two groups of disciples are baptizing, and John's disciples are getting a little hot under the collar because everybody's going to Jesus. And then the Pharisees get involved because they have a problem with what everybody's doing. And what does Jesus do? Well, you know, he goes on Facebook and he starts a protest group. And he, no, he doesn't. He doesn't. It just, he leaves. He just leaves. He just leaves. And important as baptism was, and important as baptism is, it wasn't the main event. It wasn't the main objective that Jesus had. The, the gospel was the main purpose for his coming, and he didn't let himself be embroiled in any controversy. And maybe that's a little word for some of us that do use Facebook. Um, and he kept his eye on what the Lord wanted to have him do. And so he left. He left. And in the study this week, there's a quote from Clarence McCartney that suggests when Jesus cried out from the cross, I thirst, that his thirst was not only physical, but it was also a thirst for souls. I loved this quote. He said, so when he asked this woman for a drink, it was a drink divine too that he wanted. He was a thirsty for a soul. And that is what led Jesus through the land where he had to go to Samaria that led him to the cross. That's what put him on the cross, that thirst for souls. And along the way there, it put him on the road to Samaria to meet the soul of a woman that needed him. And it isn't ever just about us because, as we see, it's the souls of an entire community, as Denise shared, by what she shared. And this point is driven home by the next thing that we see Jesus doing. He puts aside all racial prejudice, all nationalistic pride, um, all gender bias by deciding to go through Samaria. So let's pick it up in verse 4. going to skip around a little bit, so try to keep up. He needed to go through Samaria. I love that. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city in Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from the journey, sat thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria, it's our first introduction, just a woman of Samaria, came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone in the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God 
And who it is who says to you, give me a drink? Then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And whoever drinks of the water that I give that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst and nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you've said, well, I have no husband for you've had five husbands. And the one that you have now is not your husband. And in that you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you don't know, and we we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the, the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, at this point, the disciples come. There's a little conversation Jesus has with him. And while that begins, it says in verse 28 that the woman then left her water pot and went on her way into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Drop down to verse 39. It says, Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. He stayed there two days, and many more believed because of, and I love this, his own word. His own word. And they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And he stayed there two days before he moved on. I love that it says that he had to go through Samaria. He didn't actually have to. There were other routes around. Samaria was the most direct road to get into Galilee where he was heading. But most of the Jews, and I know a lot of you know this, they traditionally went around it. Um, They took a longer journey. You know, Samaria initially had been inhabited by the Jews, and it was until the Assyrian occupation. And then the king of Assyria brought in a bunch of Gentiles to live also in the land. And kind of long story short, ultimately, they not only polluted the land, but they polluted the people. They began to intermarry and eventually developed um, a very polluted form of Judaism that also worshipped other gods. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 17, and I would encourage you to because it helps you to put into context the level of animosity between these two groups. Now, the whole thing culminated with the Samaritans eventually building their own temple in Shechem and proclaiming that that was God's chosen place. They built a rival temple. They said, no, we're the real people of God, not you guys. So to say there was contention between these two groups, particularly about spiritual matters, is a real understatement. Now, I don't know how many studies that I have heard taught on the woman of Samaria over the years, um, how many accounts of it that I have read in books. And in women's books particularly, she is referred to many times um, because so many of us identify with uh, you know, what we speculate to be some circumstances in this woman's life. But you know what I realized? That I never have taught it 
And I've, so I've never really sat down and taken it apart the way I do when I have to prepare to talk about it. But it seemed very familiar to me, and I've, you know, joked only, I've said only partially joking, that if you just want to know my testimony, John chapter 4, Mark chapter 5, the beginning, that whole lunatic guy, story of Marianne, there you go, in a nutshell. You know, that's, it's pretty easy. But what I came to realize that my view of identifying with this woman largely comes from those studies and not actually from what the text says. Part of the way that I related to her, and maybe some of you too, is the fact that she had an interesting marital history. Um, To put it mildly, she's living now with somebody currently in a state of immorality, someone she's not married to. It's present in her life, the sexual immorality. And as a woman, you know, with a maybe not so little, past of her own, I can attest that it is a beautiful thing when a woman, especially a woman like that, realizes that her past or even her present doesn't keep her from a future with Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. And while all the commentators agree that she is currently living in a state of immorality and presently, um, there are some differing, sometimes wildly differing, views about the rest of what Jesus reveals about her past and what that might have to do with the whole reason for her trip to the well when it occurs um, and what might have motivated that. You know, Donald Barnhouse, great preacher and commentator, calls her the town harlot. No question there. He just says she's the town harlot based not only on her present immorality, but on the fact that she has accrued He infers five husbands, leaning toward viewing her as someone who has chosen a lifetime of illicit relationships. But listen to what John Phillips says in his commentary. Five husbands in a row during her life so far had at least some semblance of respectability. And I had that that too. I mean, she was married to these guys. She wasn't just living with all of them. But he goes on to say, we're not told how or why these marriages were dissolved, whether by death or divorce. Whatever the reasons, it was no part of the Lord's purpose, I love this line, to rake over the ashes of dead fires. There was enough flame in her present dishonorable situation. The Lord was always a perfect gentleman, possessed of impeccable manners. He wanted only to expose the sore, not to pry into all the details of her life because love covers a multitude of sin. And after I read that, it it reminded me of Genesis 8, where we see from the account of Tamar, she's married to a man, he dies because he was wicked. There's no children, so she's given to the next brother. Well, he dies. She's supposed to wait till the very, very young guy grows up to marry her. But that whole practice of a woman being handed off to another man was after the death of her first husband was very common. In fact, we see that even in the New Testament comes up when the Sadducees challenged Jesus and the whole thing, if a woman's married to a guy and he dies and another brother and there's seven of them, the whole point was to trap Jesus about the resurrection. But he doesn't say anything like, that's a ridiculous scenario, that would never happen because that's, I mean, this was a common practice in the Middle East. And even though the Samaritans were a polluted form of Judaism. They did follow many of the customs. And truly, there was no more vulnerable uh, position for a woman to be in in the Middle East during that time than to be a widow, uh, particularly if she did not have adult children. Um, So, you know, we have no idea what really precipitated those, those marriages or why they ended. You know, could she have experienced something like that? You know, very much so, that she could have just 
Maybe there were a lot of guys that were sickly in that family. I don't know. Um, you know, in those days, it was really difficult for a woman to divorce a man. But, you know, it was very easy for a man to divorce a woman for just anything. Were some of these past marriages cases of abandonment? Maybe. Again, it's just speculation. But if a woman's been as old enough to have been married five times, even if they weren't particularly long marriages, I would think, you know, she's not a very young woman anymore. 30 years ago, Newsweek magazine, maybe some of you remember this, they published a piece on the decline of marriage in America, and they quoted this as a statistic like someone did the math. Here's the statistic, that a a woman over 40 was more likely to be killed by a terrorist than to get married. Do you remember hearing that? Like, somebody did this math. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not good at math. I'm thinking this guy shouldn't have asked him. But yeah, a woman over 40 was more likely to be killed by a terrorist than to get married. Now, 20 years later, after that, Newsweek did retract that statement. They got someone who could do math, I guess, um, and figured it out. But as outlandish as that fake statistic is, I do wonder how likely were her prospects of marriage at her age, not because of her marital history, but maybe in spite of it. So she ends up living with this man for whatever reason, but, you know, again, vulnerable maybe, needing security, needing protection, needing provision. So she settles for a situation where she lives with a man who won't, or maybe for some reason can't, marry her. Is that the right choice? No. No, it's not. It it wasn't then, and, and it's not the right choice now. And even if the time of day, the time of day that it was, carries um, some different opinions. Now, I was surprised by this. I'd not heard this before until I started digging into this. The text says that it's the sixth hour. But commentators are actually pretty split what time of day this actually is. If you go by the Jewish timekeeping, it's noon. If you go by the Roman timekeeping, it's six in the evening. I'd never heard that before. I don't know if anybody else did. And you're like, well, Marianne, you should read more. I'd never heard that before, but even Warren Wiersbe, our favorite Warren Wiersbe, who we love and quote all the time, a well-known scholar, he says on his commentary on John 4, he arrived, speaking of Jesus, at Jacob's well at 6 o'clock in the evening. Check it out. The usual time for women to come for water. I was totally surprised at how many commentators actually hold to that same view. And I learned that this wasn't the only well in town. It was really significant. Jacob's well, it spoke a lot because it it was there in Samaria. They claimed it as part of their history of why that was God's land and they were really God's people. But it wasn't actually the only well around. Um, The text doesn't say nobody else was there, but even if there wasn't, maybe it was because they were at the well over the hill. You know, I don't know. But so often our portrait of this woman is based on what time of day she was getting water and why, when you could just as easily make the case that there was really nothing unusual about it at all, that it's all just speculation. And can I point out that any commentator worth his salt calls it speculation, and they do. And they do. Even our own study on the first page, I think it is, when it talks about this, it says, could it be? They present it. Could it be that she does this for this? Maybe. But listen, if you read widely, and you should, and if you dig deep in the word, and you should, you are going to hit things that come from opposite sides of the same, and this is important, non-essential issue non-essential issue. Now, don't freak out over that when that happens. Like right now, you're like, Marianne, you just ruined that story for me. (laughs) Sorry, it's just what it says. I don't know. But it's a non-essential thing in this case. 
and don't freak out over that. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And if you can't reconcile something when you hit it like that, then talk to one of the pastors or talk to somebody who teaches and somebody in leadership, because this is how we learn to be not smart women, but biblical thinkers, biblical thinkers. Now, I would never say that any of these studies that I have heard in the past about this woman were wrong in any way, that, that these things were I related to and I was so ministered to by these these speculations, and I know you were too, I would never say that they were wrong. But I did realize something as I was studying it, and a realization for myself, that by focusing on what the text doesn't say, that sometimes we might get a little bit distracted from what it actually does say. And for what it's worth, here's what I think. She was an ordinary woman doing an ordinary task on an ordinary day. Just like you, just like me, ordinary women doing ordinary things, on an ordinary day. You know, the first description of this woman is very general. Did you notice that? That even when Jesus reveals what he does know about her, it's really brief. There's no big detail or anything. Because the point isn't the magnitude of her sin or lack thereof. It's the questions. It's the answers. It's the conversation. And above all, the truth that's revealed. That's what, that what matters. And I do think that the Lord had me wrestle through all of this. So that I could see her as an ordinary woman, <clears throat> excuse me, living an ordinary life. And we're, at that time, very ordinary circumstances, but having an, or, an extraordinary encounter. What's revealed about Jesus is the point of the encounter, not what is revealed so much about the woman. <clears throat> she needed water. We need water currently. Sorry, I need water. <clears throat> I have a friend that whenever she shares and she has to drink, she turns around. But my hair might look weird in the back or something, so I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> but the point is that she needed water. And we all need and needed water because every one of us has a thirst. She was a sinner apart from God. We were sinners apart from God. Regardless of your past, regardless of your present, regardless if you've always been the good church girl that did everything right, or if you were the town harlot, every one of us thirsts. And we all needed an extraordinary encounter. We all could have been her and we could all be her. Now, if you want to hang on to that noontime thing with the wildly immoral woman, that's okay. That's okay. It's all just speculation, and there is biblical application there. Now, truthfully, I might shake you up a little bit. I don't really know what I think about all that right now. I don't really know where I come down on that. I will tell you this. Um, I don't want to go toe-to-toe with Warren Wiersbe, because, like, biblically, he could take me. I mean, you know, Dr. Wiersbe, he could take me. But whatever your view is on those things, let's focus on the conversation that took her from whatever, whoever she was, into what she became. Because spiritually speaking, I kind of think that the fact that she was a Samaritan was almost of greater significance than how sinful she might have been, because we're all sinful. But while it was really unusual for a Jewish man to address a Jewish woman, the engaging in a spiritual conversation with a Samaritan of any kind would have been really, really unusual. They were so opposed. And like today, hers is a spirituality that's a corruption. It's a corruption of the truth that keeps people from knowing the one true God. They get it partly right. They know something about Jesus. They get it partly right, but 
it's, there's just, it's not right enough for salvation. It's not right enough for salvation. Just yesterday, as I'm looking over my notes, um, I get a knock on my door. And there's a woman and a young man at my door from a particular organization that goes around and wants to share their version of Jesus. And she certainly got an, a lot of my version of Jesus. Because I, yeah. Then it was funny because I'm usually going like, yeah, yeah, I love Jesus. I should have a sign out front. You know, have you guys seen that sign? I digress. But it's like, you know, we're on a diet. We don't need Girl Scout cookies. We already have Jesus. You know, it's like the don't solicit sign. <laughs> I, I'm a little bit guilty of that, like, my home is my sanctuary. But I know, it was the Lord, and I totally got into this long conversation with this woman. But again, even in our day, sometimes even in our own pews, we have a corrupted view of who he really is. And so this meeting was, in fact, an extraordinary thing. And this woman knows it. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, because again, that Jewish view of the Samaritans was one of derision on every single level. They were racially corrupt. They were spiritually corrupt. They were morally corrupt. And the text says, when it says that they have no dealings with Samaritans, that could be better translated, they share nothing together. Because they did, I mean, I guess if you had a, you know, a coffee booth, the Samaritan maybe could buy from you. But the sharing together really speaks to not sharing the same vessel. The purity laws of the Pharisees prohibited sharing a vessel with the, with the um, Samaritans. So there must have been a really honest surprise on the part of this woman, not only to have a Jewish man speaking to her, but saying, give me a drink from the thing that you drink from. And Jesus answers her question, and I love this from the NLT, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who is speaking to you, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And this begins a conversation when a woman with a need comes to, understand, comes to the understanding of her real need and where it is that she can actually have it met, just like you and just like me. And of course, this starts out with wells and water and how deep it is and you don't have stuff to draw with, but it quickly turns into a spiritual conversation. And I love that she asks questions. I love that she asks questions and she does go toe to toe with him a little bit. I love this. She's like, are you greater than our father Jacob? And he goes, well, um, yeah, I kind of am. No, he doesn't say that, but, but she's, you know, this is where I'm at and what I believe. And I'm asking questions and there's this engagement and it very quickly turns into a spiritual discussion where Jesus begins to lead her by first presenting a possibility he presents to her a possibility, and he follows that then with an invitation. Then he asks for an admission from her, and finally, there's a revelation. I, who you're talking about, I am he, that he is the source, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And at its core, this encounter is about three truths. If you knew the gift, if you knew the gift of God and who, who it is who says to you, if you knew that the truth about obtaining salvation and the truth about who you were talking to, the truth embodied right before you, Samaritan woman, the truth about everything you need and need to know is sitting right in front of you, right in front of you. And ladies, for us today, the truth of everything we need to know and how to know him who gives it to us is sitting right in front of you. 
It's on your laps or on your phone or however you came to the word this morning. It's right in front of us. The second truth is whoever drinks of the water, I shall give him. Whoever, including you, immoral Samaritan woman, to whatever degree, to you sitting in a pew at Calvary Vista this morning, whoever drinks of the water, I shall give him. The truth is whoever wants this water can have this water. There is no one who does not need this water, regardless of their circumstance, regardless of their path, past, it is available to everyone. And the third thing is there needs to be a truthful response to this truth. See, Jesus knows the truth about her, but her admission of the truth, of the truth about her sin and her need opens the door. And then you notice her questions basically become, what do I do about that? What do I do about that? How do I respond? What's the right way to eternal life? The right way to worship? I can't get there on my own. I don't have it right. What's the right way? A truthful response about who we are and what we need and a seeking of further seeking of his truth is necessary for us to receive that truth. And he answers her. And I love his answer. And he reiterates the truth of his answer to her. In John chapter 7, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. In verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke this concerning the Holy Spirit or the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I love in verse 28, it says, she left her water pot. She left her water pot, she went her way, and she told her God's story. The same way that she, that she looked and counted Jacob's well to be part of what validated her spiritually, and, and gave her her religious identity, she had to leave something. For, she had to leave how she drew from that behind. She had to leave that water pot behind so that she could draw and receive that living water. She had to not only confess her sin, but she also had to reject her past belief for the source of living water for the one true God. And likewise, we have to come to him in truth. We have to come to him without pretense. We have to be honest with the Lord. If we're born again, we already have eternal life. But that living water that he spoke of concerning his Holy Spirit, we're told that can be quenched, right? In 1 Timothy 5.19, we can quench the Spirit and we are told not to. We quench him. We quench him with sin. We quench him with complacency when we ignore him and just try to live and move and have our being in our own strength and understanding. We quench him when we're slaking our thirst with water that does not give life. When we're seeking satisfaction that can only come from Jesus in other things besides that living water. And we thirst. We thirst. And we need to continue to drink to get the living water. We need to fill, be filled and to be being filled by the Holy Spirit. And listen, we can keep hiding and we can sit in our pew and we can ignore the truth of who we are or what we've done or maybe even what we're doing. But if you want that unimpeded flow of living water, you have to get honest about your need. You get honest about what is keeping you from receiving that. And you can hide it from each other. But you can't hide it from God. And God knows. And he loves you anyway. And he wants to give you that living water. Now, last year, 
Pastor Rob wrote a book called Longings of the Soul, which is actually a really, really good book, and he did not pay me to say that. I would, I would tell you that even if, you know, even if he didn't. But in that book, he talks about these God-given longings that we have and why. And the whole point is that God has certain longings, allows certain longings in us to draw us to the Lord so that he can't, I love that song, you know, meld me, mold me, shape me, that whole deal, that whole All those things that God wants to do when we come to him to be filled so that he can meet us and he can change us and he can use us. And in the same way that our physical thirst drives us to drink, our spiritual longings drives us to the only one, the only way that we can truly not only be satisfied, but have abundant, fruitful life. I have a question. This morning when you came in, how many of you brought a beverage drink with you? Quite a few. How many of you, once you were in, got a beverage? So everybody in the room is drinking right now. This is funny. A lot of us, we rarely leave the house without something to drink. Now, this was funny. I was thinking about this the other day. Growing up, my mom, when we would do errands around town, I'm talking about when I was little, she would never bring a thermos or anything with her. You know, she'd just be like, get in the car. You know, we're going to Woolworths, you know. (laughs) Everybody's going, Woolworths? Is that... Is that, is that over by the Target? No. Uh, but she never brought water or anything with her when we went on an errand. But what was really funny is toward the end of my mom's life, we never left the house without a thermos. And it had to be a thermos. Couldn't be my water bottle. It had to be a thermos, uh, which is always fun. She always had to pour. I'm driving and stop and go traffic. Um, so it had to be a thermos. My mom had to bring a thermos. And it was always funny. I'd be going, Mom, you know, we're just going to the bank. You know, we're just going across town. This is after I became their sole driver. You know, we're not, we're not crossing the desert here. You know, we're going to the bank. I've got to bring my thermos. And I go, you know, we're not walking. We're not on a donkey. We're in my air-conditioned car. But I always had to wait for her to fill up that thermos and bring it with her. And, you know, when I was young, I never did that either. I don't know when it became a thing, but it's a thing. And now I never leave the house without something to drink. Um, Listen, when I was a young Christian, and you might, this might be your experience too, I just knew I was thirsty. You know, I just knew I was thirsty. I didn't really fully understand why. I didn't really know why. I didn't really know the difference that living water would make or how much that I really needed it. But as the years go by, I can tell you, I know more and more the difference that living water makes. Because the older I get, I know where that thirst comes from. I recognize it so much more clearly now from the sin nature that wants my own way and wants my own rights and wants my own pleasures and my comforts and my safety. And listen, the older I get, the more I realize that apart from him, I can't do anything to satisfy any of that. And I'm thirsty. And the older that I get and over the years and I see how the Lord has changed me and grown me, as I've learned more and more of who he is, I see how much farther I have to go and how much more I need to grow, like it says in Romans, to be conformed into the image of his son. And I'm thirsty. And I have to leave my water pot by the well that doesn't satisfy so I can drink deeply from the well that will always satisfy And he says, the water I give to him or to her will become in her a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the water becomes in her a fountain, not a stagnant pool, but clear and fresh and clean and pure life-giving water that flows endlessly from a source that is always uncorrupted, 
always unpolluted and unable to ever be anything but life-giving to us. And we can get that. Like when the Samaritan, as the Samaritan woman said, come see a man. Come see a man. Now, I don't know what my response would have been to a man who walked up to me and told me everything I had ever done. I probably would not have been such a spiritual conversation as quickly as it was with her. But you know what, though? It was because it wasn't just any man. There was something about the way that he told her these things that was free of condemnation, that was free of judgment, that was free of scowling disapproval, but instead it was an invitation filled with love. Thirst is quenched when we come see a man. See, I was really fortunate last month to be at a retreat where two of the sessions were taught by Johnny Erickson Tata, and I know a lot of you know her story, but if you don't, when she was 17 years old, she broke her neck in a diving accident, and this year marks the 50th year that she has been in a wheelchair, completely paralyzed. And in those 50 years, she has loved and served the Lord, has a big international ministry, but she's also dealt with every kind of emotion and that you would even imagine, you know, from and, and continuing through the years of fear and of anger and of resentment and depression. She's lived 50 years with daily pain and complication from her injuries. And just recently, she had to battle breast cancer as well. And yet, though she struggles, her faith doesn't fail. It doesn't fail. Her faith is challenged, but her faith isn't overcome because she's a woman that's learned out of desperation over the years that she's followed Jesus to drink deeply from that well. Now, those two sessions that she taught were just so amazing and ministered to me on so many levels. I was convicted. I was challenged. um, I was comforted. But she said one thing that totally impacted me more than anything else that she said, and this is what she said, we have to fight to stay satisfied in God. We have to fight to stay satisfied in God because you know what? There's nothing natural in us. There's nothing natural about finding our satisfaction in God. And then everything in the world and the flesh do what they can to thwart that. In my strength, I can't do it. And in your strength, you can't do it. But filled with the Holy Spirit, we can be strong in the Lord. We can be strong in the power of his might. We can take up that full armor of God. And having done all, we can stand. Like we're told in Ephesians 6. And this is my challenge to you, ladies especially as the commercials where if people love you, they will buy you a Lexus this Christmas. Find your satisfaction in God and you fight to find your satisfaction in God. Listen, are you tired of fighting everything else? Are you tired of fighting temptation to do what you know is sin? Are you tired of fighting undisciplined emotions or fear or anxiety or loneliness? Are you tired of fighting that kind of covetousness or resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness? Listen to me. If you fight to stay satisfied in him, none of those things can possibly have their way with you. There can be no victory for those things in the life of someone who fights to stay satisfied in God. Satisfaction from being drenched in the living water is going to douse the fire from everything that makes us unsatisfied and makes us unholy. And instead, streams of living water will well up from within us and flow through us and flow from us clean, pure, life-giving, 
not just for ourselves, but for all those that we encounter, just ordinary women doing ordinary things on an ordinary day. So if you're thirsty, come and see a man. Father, I just want to pray for these women, for myself this morning. If we've been ignoring thirst, Lord, and just thinking this is just the way life is, speak to that woman right now, God. And remind her, if you knew who it was that's offering you a drink, you would say, give me this living water. I pray for her this morning that, Lord, you would fill her afresh with your spirit. Father, for the woman that's just weary and broken and hurting or fearful, for the woman who's not well, for the woman that's sick, and for the woman that's mourning, Be that living water for her now, Lord. Fill her with that life-giving, pure, clean water, Lord. Help her to know that you are never far from her. Help her to know that you are with her. Help her to know that you know her name and you know who she is. And your love for her never fails. It never runs out. And Lord, that if we just come and see a man... We can dwell in that place with our thirst satisfied. So I pray, Father, that you would help us by your spirit to fight for that satisfaction, that we would be coming to see you, not out of rote and out of habit, but because we know that's where life is. And we want to know how to live in light of the life you have for us. And we want to live a life that is right and pleasing to you. We want to know. So draw us to yourself, Lord. Help us to be women who come and see a man and receive all that you have from us today, Lord. We just thank you and praise you for who you are, for what you're doing in all of our lives, just a bunch of ordinary women who love you. In Jesus' name, amen.